Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Tom Clark, and this week we're going to be talking to the economist and former Bank of England rate setter Danny Blanchflower about inequality with additional insights from Nobel Prize winner Angus Deaton. Has our world become more unequal over time? And if that's right, what should we do about it? First, though, I'm joined here in our Westminster studio by Samir Rahim, our arts and books editor. Um, inequality, does it pop up a lot now when you're editing those cultural pages, Samir? Uh, to some extent, um, although, yes, we just had a piece about Edmund Duval. Um, he, he's got a he's got a exhibition at the Frick, and that's quite an interesting uh, place. It's sort of the definition of um, a high-quality old master museum. Um, but his piece is intervening, as it were, questioning the sort of the origins of the place. A robber baron, Frick was a bo- robber baron in the early 20th century, and his, his money and his wealth which produced this wonderful building and, and all the paintings in it, uh, was, you know, some people might say, built on the back of uh, the workers. Um, and how that interacts, what that means now to have these great cultural institutions funded um, by these people is another big question, for example, the Tate are thinking about um, mm. um, whether they should uh, not have anything to do with BP. And, uh, and um, yeah, it's a bigger question in the arts. Um but but more generally, I was thinking about inequality. Is it actually getting worse in the UK as opposed to um, the US? I mean, it is a good question. If you look at the main summary measure, the Gini coefficient that people talk about, then inequality of income hasn't changed much in 25 years uh, in the UK. Um, but because we tend to read a lot about America, we kind of make the same... Um, assumption that things have been getting much more unequal here as they have over there. But there's a couple of really important caveats, which is that um, you need, when you're thinking about inequality, I think, to see who do people compare themselves to. Things can change in the population, like you can have more pensioners and more pensioners with quite good pensions, and they'll tend to be clustered in the middle, and that will depress inequality if there's more of those people whereas if you look at the inequality for example in what full-time working men are paid that has gone up um and it might be that like if we look at just those working men that then they're comparing themselves to each other and so they feel like inequality is a lot worse it's also to do with conspicuous consumption isn't it i mean when we have instagram feeds of people's wonderful lifestyles um it is easier to um to feel envy for them and then 
um, it can feel like there's more inequality just because we see more of the rich um, and what they do and their lifestyles than, than we did in the past, perhaps. It's pretty hard, I think, in any country that's gone through 10 years of austerity not to see more inequality on the streets. I mean, no one walking around London or, for that matter, Brighton can deny that there's more homelessness than there was um, a few years ago. So, yeah, you've probably got more visible extremes of, of inequality at the, at the, at the two ends, um, regardless of what the summary statistics say. And, of course, even if inequality has been stable for 25 years... It's also been quite high for 25 years because it went up an awful lot in the 80s and into the early 90s. And there's a difference, isn't there, between income, i.e. people's salaries, and wealth, i.e. their assets. Yeah, and um, now people are worrying a lot more about wealth inequality rather than income. It's a bit confusing because compared with 30 or 40 years ago, more people in the middle have now got valuable houses it's obviously much harder now for young people to get in on the housing ladder but you know compared to the 1950s or 60s many more people still own and so that might make wealth look more equal but the real wrinkle is that wealth's just got much bigger relative to income and it's always very very unequal wealth because some people have got nothing and some people have got loads and so you know if you have this feeling of conspicuous consumption being shoved in your face it might be because there are now many more people where life is about what you own and not what you earn it's also regional as well i mean we're sitting here in westminster probably one of the wealthiest if not the wealthiest square mile in the country but go somewhere else for example we had a piece on oldham um and the difficulties up there i remember once going through uh Newport um, in Wales and just stepping out for an hour and being quite shocked at the sort of boarded up high street. Um, Regional inequality within the UK is also um, pretty serious, isn't it? Yeah, and this has got incomparably more marked, I think, than the 80s, regardless of what's been going on in households. You know, there were poor places. There were ex-mining villages and so on in, um, in the 1980s, but they're also quite... Um, proud small towns in the north and across the Midlands and even places like Oldham, you know, in the 60s or 70s would have felt a lot more prosperous than in inner city Manchester. But now with big universities, canal side developments, endless restaurants and whatever, big city living feels quite prosperous. But for lots of these towns like Oldham you mentioned, uh, it ain't so at all. You talked about how inequality rose a lot in the 1980s, and that really is a sort of Thatcherite legacy, isn't it? We've got a piece in this month's magazine by Tim Montgomery talking about how the Tories need to look back at the Thatcherite legacy and re-emphasise their ideology away from free market um, individualism towards a more sort of settled sense of home, community. And and part of that must surely be um, emphasising the one-nation conservatism that you know the idea that um everyone needs to benefit at the same time otherwise social divisions could become pretty pretty serious i mean that's right a lot of skeptical people will say we heard a lot from david cameron about the big society we heard a lot from theresa may about burning injustices um and yet we still got a lot of people um sleeping in tents um on our streets compared to a few years ago um but tim montgomery i think is a conservative who's thought very seriously about all of this and um, 
is very interesting in what bits of the 80s you should disown and what bits you should cling on to. And for him, what's important is the more moral side uh, of Thatcherism, the vigorous virtues and so on. But he thinks that should be compatible with um, people not getting on their bike, as he says, but staying where they are and doing something for their community locally. And what's really nice about the piece is he ends it with a box with, you know, from planning to um, family policy, some specific suggestions on how you could get away from a social mobility obsessed society towards one that's maybe more about security. So to Tim's piece is really a memo to the new PM, who is looking very likely, almost certainly, to be Boris Johnson. Do you think that um, he feels the same burning injustices of inequality that uh, Theresa May and others uh, claim they did? Well, I mean, Tim uh, is absolutely convinced that this is what Boris Johnson wants to do. I have to say, I can't see much evidence for it myself. Um, He's not necessarily, you know, the most right-wing Tory on the planet. Um, But, like, you know, he had the leadership election, he had his tax cuts that he talked about, and they were all really aimed at people on over £50,000, with most going to people on um, £80,000 or more. So it's a bit hard to see how he's going to um, level out society by doing that. On the other hand, um, it looks like he is going to be loosening up the purse strings quite a lot. Um, and simply by deciding we've had enough austerity, expansive, Boris Johnson's going to come along and make sure everyone has a spiffingly wonderful time, um, it might be that some of the social services cuts and we've seen can be eased off on a bit and that will I guess um, like take off some of the rough edges of inequality potentially. Okay thanks very much Samir now let's move on to our conversation with the economist Daniel technically speaking David Blanchflower about inequality in the UK and why fixing the unemployment rate may not be the Hail Mary solution that we once thought it was. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG.
delighted to be joined here by um, Danny Blanchfile, who is the labour market economist who made his name in a big way at the Bank of England <laughs> a decade ago as the one man on the Monetary Policy Committee who saw the trouble of 2008 coming a full year ahead anticipating that Queen's question about why no one saw it. Because they were working on something else, do you remember? <laughs> and what were they working on? The best I, of all possible yes, worlds? the best of all possible worlds, yeah. I mean, who cares, actually? <laughs> but the best of all possible worlds didn't come out into no. play. Instead, we no. got the mother of all um, recessions. And you exactly. returned to it in a new book, Not Working, which right. tells us how you think the world of jobs is looking when we are, what, officially 10 years into a recovery. Yes. The book documents a lot of hurt that you you in your book earlier did. We looked at people and see that trust is breaking down. If you like, bonds that hold communities together are breaking down. Really severely impacted by that Great Recession. But now we're 10 years on. But the problem is the recovery has been very weak. This is what Keynes called the long dragging conditions of semi-slump. So we haven't, re we haven't restored good times, if you like. So now we're in a position in the UK where real wages are 5.5% below what they were in 2008. And the prospect right now is the world economy is headed down. So if people are hurting at the end of a boom in years where we've seen, I mean, slow recovery, that's absolutely true. But the worry is that the world is now starting to slow. Uh, we're seeing Brexit. You could, in a sense, you couldn't see Brexit at a worse time at the end of a recovery. And we saw a stimulus package going on in the United States at the end of a recovery didn't do very much. So the worry is now the hurt and pain and suffering and depression that we're seeing is only going to get worse. And it's not clear what people can do about it. So you, um, like I said, did see... And I think the small print of the labour market data trouble ahead back in yes. 2007 when lots of people were still very complacent. So we do need to pay attention when you're saying the world economy is looking a bit jittery again. What is it now that you're looking at as a warning sign? Well, the worry right now is that policymakers have been looking at the unemployment rate. And when I first started doing labour economics, I used to go down the road here to the unemployment seminar at the London School of Economics. And looking at unemployment was all you needed to know. Turns out that's not true anymore. So we have very low levels of unemployment, 3.8 in Britain, 3.6 in America, 3.1 in Germany. And central bankers, the policymakers that missed it 10 years ago, have been saying, aha, we're at full employment. Everything's fine. Well, um, the, the economy is really um, uh, as tight as it can go, if you like. And what America did is America, in 18 months ago or so, started raising interest rates. Now, the problem was that th there's no sign that actually we're there, particularly based on things like underemployment. Um, and so what's happened is the Fed raised rates by a lot, and now they're going to have to cut them. The market thinks in America there's going to be three rate cuts by Christmas. So that tells you that the world economy is slowing. The labor market is not at full employment. And a big deal in, in the labor market around the world is that people cannot get enough hours um, that they would like to. So someone on the minimum wage, it's fine the minimum wage has risen, but instead of having a minimum wage at 40 hours, they can get 15. And that's the big problem around the world. And that tells you that we're not at full employment. So in America, is there a significant now proportion of the uh, workforce that wants more hours and can't get them? Well, there's that. And there's a really bigger factor in America. Even though the unemployment rate is low, a series that is really puzzling and worrying is the employment rate. So that's just take a bunch of 40-year-olds, say what proportion of them are employed, say 60. Mm. Okay, so the problem with the employment rate is today that's two and a half percentage points 
below where it was in 2008. So to just get you back to where you were to get the same number, it's about 7 million additional jobs that would have to get you there. So that's people being demoralized and giving up looking. Being demoralized, well, giving up working. And the book talks about not working where have all the good jobs gone. Well, these people have left the labor market because they can't find good jobs. But, we, but it certainly appears that if there were good jobs there, they'd come back. So what are they doing? Because we know that in Britain there's been times you've looked at very carefully where people have gone on to things like incapacity benefit. Um, they may have health problems and, it, you know, the welfare state gives you a way to survive in a fairly miserable way. In America, much of America, it doesn't, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and there's a huge puzzle exactly what these folks are doing. Angus Deaton has documented actually what's happened is that they are very unhappy and actually what's happening is they're, they're essentially killing themselves. There's deaths of despair in America. Opioid poisoning appears to be related to the labor market. Suicide, drinking, all of those things. And so we're seeing this especially amongst the less educated prime age whites. Doesn't appear to be such a problem for minorities. This is a white, less educated. We thought it was mostly male, but we're starting to see it for females too. So this is really, I mean, I, I, I think of words like despair and rage. And we're seeing that at the, at the peak end of a, of a, of a real, of a, of a big recovery. I mean, in America, we're talking about 72,000 people last year died of opioid poisoning and uh, overdoses. And the evidence appears to be mm. that that's related to the labor market, the lack of decent jobs, and ability to, if you like, make as much money as your father, your grandfather made. So these, th this despair that we're seeing doesn't sound like the thing that ought to be there at full employment. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there were epidemics, weren't there, in the 80s of heroin use in Glasgow and Liverpool and places like that associated, and the mining communities associated with the falling away of jobs and the shattering of identity, those kind right. of things. But now there is work, but it turns out that the type it's, of right. work matters. Right, the type of work matters. And one of the big things is that the, the location of these, of the deaths of despair... Um, is particularly related to places that voted for Trump. I mean, I live in a, in a state, New Hampshire, pretty rich state, 2.5% unemployment rate, and we have a major problem. I think we're the third-ranked per capita state with deaths of despair. It's not clear why this is happening and how some of it has to do with the lack of jobs and the lack of availability of health care, um, and, and if you become addicted to trying to get you off that. But what we're seeing is society hasn't focused on that. It's, mm. I mean, think in the UK, what we've seen in towns like Wakefield, you've cut the number of police, you've closed the libraries, you've closed the swimming pool, you've closed the social services, and there's no job out there. So, and the high street's going and the in high, parallel. Exactly, and the high street now disappearing in parallel. And the Tory candidate I've been listening to in the last 10 days, not one of them is talking about, they're all talking about tax cuts to persons X and Y, but no one's talking about, I guess the... The thing that I first learned when I did economics in London was, what about the man or woman on the Clapham omnibus? Now it's the it's the person walking down the high street in Wakefield or Merthyr Tidville or Rochdale that voted for Brexit. And what hope have we given them? So I don't really see that improving, especially if the economy starts to turn down, driven by, once again, mistakes made by policymakers and economists. So this is worrying. OK, let's just talk in about um, prevention and cure, because that's all very good yeah, and right. very worrying on the diagnosis. First of all, if the worst happens again, I mean, uh, maybe a word as well on how bad you think the, 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 the no-deal Brexit scenario could be. But if, with or without that, um, if there is a, a, another crash, some people say, oh, we're 
out of uh, avenue now in terms of um, running up anything more on the credit card to rescue yes. us. But is yes. that right? I mean, central banks can still print money. I mean, yeah. Well, we're we're into the world of the unknown. Um, I remember sitting in the MPC and we started to realize that rates were going to have to get down pretty low. Well, now we've realized they can actually go negative. How negative they can go, we really don't know. Um, but obviously, the ammunition that we had in two thousand and eight. I mean, I started to vote for rate cuts when rates were five and a half percent, and we eventually cut them to a half. Mm. Now they're at 0.75 let's imagine zero is not the lower bound but it's not far that it can go so then the obvious thing is you're going to have to start to do quantitative easing the other worry and i think we should think about it in terms of brexit and in terms of the the, the vote now for a prime minister you're going to need fiscal authorities to step into the fold you're going to need as we did in 2008 stimulus probably on the fiscal front that's going to be pretty worrying in the uk if there's no, I mean, we may or may not have a chancellor by the end of the year. We're going to have to have a new governor of the Bank of England. That's going to be very important in this downturn. So you really need policymakers there who are able to pass things through the parliament. Who knows if a government could pass some kind of stimulus measure through the parliament? There's a problem in the United States. So I worry that we don't have much ammunition. That could mean that this downturn could be pretty bad. Now, what? Um, if George Osborne was here, what he'd be saying to you is, well, actually, we have got the deficit back under control. It was 10 percent or whatever of GDP. And now it's only a couple of percent. And therefore, we do have some leeway if the worst happens. If we would listened to you in 2008, nine, um and just kept spending, then um, we'd be in worse trouble now. What do you say to that? <laughs> I think that's the most ludicrous argument I heard in a really long time. In 2010, the economy was growing beautifully from the, from the recovery from about to the midst of 2008 through 2009 and 10, driven by what the central bank did and given what the um, uh, what, what, what the government did. So when you bring in austerity, what you've actually created, let's just make this clear to everybody. What George Osborne generated was the slowest recovery in 300 years. We've never seen one in peacetime before. The last one was the South Sea bubble, and the one before that was the Black Death. <laughs> so what we've had is an unbelievably slow recovery. And the contrast, if you looked at between 2008 and 10 when austerity came in, the growth path of this economy was the same as it had been in Britain in every other recovery before that. So what happened was it killed off productivity, productivity flat as a pancake, um, so that's had a big impact. People have had to. People have been hired at low rates of pay, but it's that austerity which now we know was a huge mistake, a reckless mistake, should never have been done. What Keynes taught us was, in a recession, the public sector crowds in the private sector. The public sector invests. That lets the private sector come in, and as the private sector takes hold, the public sector moves out of the way. What George Osborne did was he slashed public spending, which then slashed private spending, and the whole thing went down together. So to say it was all we were all in together was sort of true because we were all in going down together. So that was right, a disastrous, yeah. an absolutely disastrous experiment, which I think caused Brexit and caused many of the hurts that we're seeing here. Probably the greatest mistake. You know, up up until the vote for Brexit, <laughs> which I don't think was a good idea. And definitely in terms of the kind of community facilities and things you were saying, right. closing and, and then the knock-on effect of that. But then we do have Brexit. How bad is it going to be? Well, I, I think it's I, I think there's two bits to it. I think what you have written about and what I've written about is that people are hurting. And I think Brexit is a reflection of that hurt. 
Now, the question is, is any, is any of the things that have been voted for, is Trump going to deliver for those people that were hurting? Are the Brexiteers who come in now, if they leave the, UK, if they leave the EU or not, are they going to deliver on the people who are hurting? Don't know the answer to that, but the great worry to me is... I suspect you've got a suspicion. I have a little suspicion, yes, which is that not that they're going to be helped. But I think the last thing to say is you couldn't have picked a worse time to do Brexit. Mm. I mean, if you'd have done it when the economy was growing nicely, but when the world economy is slowing and you're increasing uncertainty, what you've seen in the last few months is falling investment, um, falling retail sales at a time where the global economy is slowing. So you have all of these things, but what you've introduced is you have complete uncertainty in the economics of what you're going to do. So that's bad. So what can we do? You said it's uncertain what we'll be able to do when we kind of hit the wall, if we do. But there are some very, very long-run things you've talked about here in terms of, you know, in the United States, mm -hmm. males' wages have been stuck for, you know, getting on for half a century now. This is, this is very long-term stuff. If we want to create better jobs and bring some of the good jobs back, well, I, I mean, you might sort of crudely call it doing negative Osborne, which is actually think about the ties that bind communities and think about infrastructure spend. But let's think about, I mean, a, a Yorkshire mining town. What are you going to do? Um, you can encourage, you, lots of people have left. So maybe what we have to do is go back in there and think we can build communities. We can go and build, rebuild a library, a community center, a swimming pool, places for people to go, places for them to send their kids to go, parks. Those kinds of investments in communities, essentially, I mean, I think of that as an infrastructure spend, but I think the really big deal is what you did in 2010 was you stopped investing in things. Let's go back and invest in people and places. Invest in our people seems like a good idea. Um, I talk about help people to move if they want to. So if you're in if you're in Wakefield and there's a job somewhere and you it's difficult, we'll pay for you to move. We'll pay for you to be you know, give you an allowance for a couple of years to go. And the other one is give give help for childcare. We certainly have to sort things out for, for young people who've got tuition fees. I mean, they've been burdened with these fees, and that's an impact. But we start to think, I think the way to go is you invest in people and communities instead of ripping communities apart. And that's what you and I have both been thinking about. If you rip communities apart, it turns out that's really bad. So the obvious thing that's a counter to it is, you know, we're clever people. We can work out a way of trying to reverse that and I, and I think it's about um, um philip alston wrote about it what we've seen in the last decade is the glue that holds communities together you and mm. i got to start re-gluing things <laughs> right <laughs> thank you very much and it's great to finish on a help a hopeful note after all of that <laughs> danny thanks a lot Now, the Nobel Prize winning economist Angus Deaton also joined Prospect with the British Academy last month to discuss inequality and his own research on America's deaths of despair. His early research on the rising mortality rates of working class white Americans presaged the rise of Trump in 2016 and remains eerily relevant to our world today. We've pulled a few clips from our event. So here's Deaton himself on the difference between inequality and unfairness and why the Gini coefficient, that summary measure of inequality, is really not a good way for us to grasp the scale of the crisis. Unfairness and inequality are not the same thing, especially not income inequality. So you can imagine living in, you can imagine living in a fair world 
in which there's a lot of inequality, a lot of income inequality. You can imagine living in an unfair world in which there's a lot or even less income inequality. And I think what people really hate is unfairness. And you know, it's not to do with inequality, it's to do with procedural unfairness. It's, it's not having an equal voice in, in front of the law, for instance or you know, not being able to fully participate in society, to feel that you're not represented in Westminster anymore, which is a lot of the people who are really angry with Brexit are, are feeling unrepresented. That's unfair. It doesn't count as income inequality. So that's the second marker. The third marker is that even within material economic inequality, there's lots of ways of cutting up this beast, even if you stick with the Gini coefficient. You know, I, I, shock my friends by saying, I'd be really happy if I never heard the word Genie in my life again. You know, <laughs> Genie, it turns out, was a really unpleasant guy. You know, he was put him a, back in the bottle. What? Put the Genie back in put the bottle. Put the Genie back in the bottle and put Corrado Genie back in the bottle with it. You know, he was a great <laughs> supporter of Mussolini. Um, he got into terrible trouble for it. He spent his, uh, the la last years of his life finding Italian-American um, friendship societies to atone for the ter his terrible behavior prior to the war. And so, you know, let's get this guy off the map, you know. Okay. <laughs> but it just, I mean, this is final income we, we were talking about here, or yeah. wealth. Yeah. Well, so yeah, the composition that. of that is actually very important yeah. here. So let's instead think about wages, for example. So here we've got an economy that's growing, right? But people, most people's wages, the median wages, have not risen for more than 10 years. And as Ed says, you know, it's a long time since that happened. We don't really expect that to happen. In the US, median wages have not risen for 50 years, 5-0, half a century. And if you're a person without a BA, then median earnings for people without a BA have been falling like a stone until the last two or three years where they've sort of picked up, but they picked up a little bit. You know, it looks like something goes like this, with a little ticket the end. And many people are hailing that reversal, but boy, does it have a long way to go. So I want you to think of an economy, you see, and, and what the genie does is it takes us away from thinking about what's actually going on. And so what's going on here is you've got a hyper-globalized world. You've got a lot of mechanism, mechanization, a lot of automation going on in the economy. That's making a lot of people very wealthy. Um, people are doing very well out of that, thank you very much. But the regular workers who are not particularly well educated, the median wage earner in both America and the US has been left behind by this. So if you were to look at the Gini coefficient, I'll let it out of the bottle for a second again, of wages, of pre-tax wages, um, then you would see widening inequality um, you know, over this period of globalization and things. And that really bothers people. And in Britain, you have it too, because you have London is doing incredibly well, and a lot of the rest of the country is doing really badly. I mean, there's this um, famous phrase from um, your colleague at the FT, I've forgotten his name, about London being shackled to a corpse. Right. Ganesh. And Ganesh, yes. It's a, it's a wonderful phrase. And once you've heard it, you can't get it out of your mind, which is perhaps the bad thing. But the corpse is very resentful of this, too, because it sees <laughs> London doing incredibly well. And why should we be a corpse um, when London is really doing very well? Now, the big difference in this between the US and the UK, and what reconciles that with the numbers you showed, is that the UK has a much more effective safety net system. Right. 
Yeah. So that what has happened is those wages, which have not grown very much or have grown hardly at all at the bottom and grown a lot at the top, have been compensated by makeups of various sorts so that people get payments from the state and so on. Now, the question that you want to really ask yourself is, does that make up for it? You know, are all we really concerned about is post-tax income, or is it is there something deeper going on in that that people actually want to earn their own living, and they're deeply resentful of not earning their own living and becoming wards of the state in some sense. And these people in the north of England who used to have, in many cases, awful jobs. I mean, they were coal miners. No one should ever have been a coal miner. It's an awful, awful job. But they had a social life, a dignity, a belief that went along with that. And now they're putting things in boxes for Amazon or they're taking the dole. And that part of their life has come apart. And in the US, marriage has come apart for those people too. Um, childbearing has come apart. The majority of white mothers have had at least one child out of wedlock. I mean, there's a social catastrophe going on because these people, and you can't capture it through the Gini coefficient or by looking at inequality in income. I mean, you've got this, you know, these people are just being left behind by the globalized, automating, wealth producing economy, and it is producing wealth. Right, it's not that we're all in this together, and that's where the inequality, I think, really comes back in because the people, you know, who are not participating in this are seriously not behind, and they may not always be the very poorest um, people in many cases. In the U.S., um, you know, black people are much, much more likely to be poor um, than white people are, and I think in the U.S. too, we have this extra dimension of race, which is making things much, much, much more complicated. Um, white Americans have had this white privilege for a long, long time. Um, they've had it for so long they don't even see it as a privilege anymore. And as they're losing it, um, they see it as persecution rather than the removal of a long-standing um, privilege. And I think that's one of the dark sides of this. And you don't have that here to the same extent. But I, you think, you know, it is all about inequality, but very little of it is about the post-tax genie coefficient. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Angus Deaton there. And let's just hear from him in one more clip from the same event where he looks forward to the 2020 presidential election. Has a word to say on the candidate's and some thoughts on what they might or might not do about the inequality situation. Um, I can talk more about the US than here. The US may seem hopeless, but I'm not sure it is. Um, I think the you know Trump catastrophe has um, produced a much more interesting 
democratic field than there's ever been for a really long time. And there are people in there with very, very serious policy proposals, um, particularly Elizabeth Warren, who you know is really a pro-capitalist, but thinks it's broken and needs to be fixed, and has very precise policies, integrative policies for thinking about it. I've also been very impressed with the support that Anne and I's work has gotten from central bankers, in particular. So um, Janet Yellen has been a huge supporter of our work, um, talking about it, making it prominent uh, whenever she gets the opportunity. Um, Christine Lagarde at the IMF, um, similarly. Um, it's something to do with the fact they're both women, I think. Um, but nevertheless, um, central bankers have a lot more freedom in some ways than do... Um, Carney's also very strongly supported our work. Mm. So, I mean, I'm hopeful that you can get the ear of people who do have power and are maybe not quite so trammeled by politics um, and thinking, of course, politics is where the solution is in the end. And you have to persuade far-seeing politicians that they want to change things and they want to change things in the right way. And I think, you know, I've had to wait a long time in my life before anything I said paid anyone paid any attention to, but um, it, you, you can do it. And that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interviews with Danny Blanchflower and Angus Deaton. Now, Blanchflower's book, Not Working, Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone, is out with Princeton University Press. And Deaton wrote about America's death of despair in this month's double issue of Prospects, which is out now at Newsstand. Rebecca Liu is this week's producer. Um, and if you've enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review, which really does help. We'll see you again next week. Thank you and goodbye.